Hi, I'm Whitney. And I'm John. You're listening to Friendly Neighborhood Refugee, a podcast about getting to know refugees for who they are and breaking through cultural, stereotypical, and language barriers. Refugees are covered by the media in overgeneralized and often negative ways. We rarely get a glimpse at who these refugees are as individuals. Our goal with this podcast is to create a space for them to tell a different story, their story. Thanks so much for tuning in to episode three of Friendly Neighborhood Refugee. Today's guest, Anna, is a refugee resettlement agent in Vermont. She talks us through the selection process of coming to America as a refugee and the ways that we can help those who are resettled here. Her perspective gave us deeper insight into the process and greater empathy for those who have made the long journey to America. We learned a lot listening to her and hope that you will too. What is the organization that you work for? So, uh, yep, I work at a field office of a national agency. It's USCRI. It's the United States Committee for Refugees and Immigrants. A lot of acronyms in our world. And it's also known as VRRP. And VRRP stands for Vermont Refugee Resettlement Program. So there are nine national agencies in the United States who, who resettle refugees. And each of those nine national agencies, they're called voluntary agencies or VOLAGs, they have either field offices or affiliates. Okay. So the office I used to work for in Manchester was an affiliate, or is an affiliate of USCRI, okay. and now I work at a field office of USCRI. Interesting. Something along with red tape, probably. Yes, yeah. <laughs> For sure. Okay, so then what does um, your organization specifically, like how do you help, you talked about like helping resettle, but mm-hmm. a little bit more about that. Um, so each site is, you know, the basically the same with, diff, with slightly different programs depending on their funding and depending on what grants they have. So the one that I work for, we we provide uh, wraparound services. So each case that comes through, that could be one person or a case of eight people, they have a case manager assigned to them. So they're provided with case management. They are also provided with employment services, which can be used for up to a year. But if, if someone comes in at a year and a half and they just lost their job and they need help finding another one, we're not going to... We're not going to turn them away. Sure. We're going to help them out. Um, we provide English as um, a second language classes. And for our specific office, we have those classes spread out throughout Burlington and Winooski. So each client who comes through, they have to take an English test, and then they are assigned to a class. And the good thing about our program is that the classes aren't all in one place, so they don't have to walk far. It's usually, um, you know, a five-minute walk to their English class. Um, so really accessible, and we also offer interpretation services. So anytime we, uh, anytime we interact with our client and we need more in-depth communication, we don't have the language in-house. We we have a system that we use to get an interpreter. Also, anytime we go see. Um, a provider or we go to work with our clients for the first time we our interpretation services help 
facilitate that communication. Um, what else? I wrote it down just in case I forgot. <laughs> and then lastly, we have um, we have a community partnership program and so a lot of our clients are connected to what we call a mentor or a family friend so it's someone from the community who will go visit them for a few hours each week help them grocery shop that week or take them to the park or show them a cool part of Vermont so those are generally the services that we provide can I just ask a couple questions specifically specifically about um the your the people who are coming are they all from one country? From multiple, you, you mentioned you have multiple interpreters, so I'm assuming you have yes. a few at least different languages. Yes. So our clients right now are coming from um, Bhutan, okay. uh, originally from Bhutan, but they're living in Nepal from the DRC, so the Democratic Republic of Congo. But the DRC is so big that most of our Congolese clients then might live in you know uh, Tanzania or or Uganda or Rwanda, Burundi, um, Somalia. We have clients from Somalia. We have clients from Iraq. Wow. And we also have a satellite office that opened up in Rutland, Vermont, and we have Syrian clients there. Okay. So, all over. All over. <laughs> um, I notice you're saying clients. When you say client, what do you, what do you mean? Um, it's every refugee who comes through. I just, I, we say client because we're providing them services and yeah. um, it's just another way. So client, refugee, new American, um, they all have obviously different meanings, but that's, you know, depending in what setting I'm in, I'll, I'll use one of those words. Cool. Um, I was going to ask you something else about that. Oh, you mentioned um, helping with like job services and, um, and the language classes. Are they... What I mean, there's probably not a typical timeline, mm-hmm. but like, is there? I don't know. Like for how, like, the I guess the turnaround. Like someone comes to America, maybe speaking some English, maybe not at all. Mm-hmm. From then, when they're able to start working, the and the people that we've talked to um, already have been very anxious about getting to work, and yes, wanting to work and being grateful to work and. Excited to like pay taxes. And That's probably like the that. number one priority and worry for I'd say from from my experience, mm-hmm. um, doing this type of work for about I guess three years now. That's the main concern right when they get here, is the worry of how they're going to pay rent. Mm-hmm. Are their kids going to go to school? Are they going to learn English? Are they going to yeah. be able to get around? So to dig a little bit deeper. The, the main goal of resettlement in the United States is what we call early self-sufficiency. Okay. So our, our clients, the, our new American neighbors, are expected to um, be paying rent, have a job, their kids in school, all of this that we've built up throughout mm-hmm. our whole lives, that is um, supposed to happen within 90 days. So they have three months to get the ball rolling. Um, each each refugee who comes through gets a one-time federal grant of um, roughly, I think, $970 in that, right in that range. So under $1,000. And that is that goes toward rent, food, um, any clothing that they might need. For and, 90 days? Yes. And does it, is it... Is it predicated on like how many kids they have, or is it like, so no matter what you get? If there is a newborn baby, they 
they technically get right you know right under under a thousand dollars so if you have a family of eight you're gonna have i don't know around seven ish seven thousand dollars to work with okay yeah and that's called your your welcome money your reception and placement money and that's a gift not a loan or it is a loan it's it's a yeah i guess a gift it's a grant from the federal government it's not yep like a, they don't have to pay that back necessarily. Yes, but refugees do have to pay for their flight. So they take a loan out from the International Organization for Migration, IOM. So they, I don't know the full extent of what IOM does, but mm-hmm. I know that they help arrange the flights for refugees to come to the United States. So they take out a loan, and then usually right around the six-month mark is when they have to start paying that mm-hmm. loan back. Wow. So That's it's a lot like cheap flights. <laughs> no, one way. But if you're that's a family true. of eight, yeah. that's eight times a one way flight from across the world, Kenya. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's um, like as much. That, that could be literally as much as they got in the grant just to live for ninety days. Yeah, um, and IOM tries really hard to make to make sure that they get the cheapest flight as possible sure. to make it as mm-hmm. most accommodating because they know down the line it's going to be paid right. back. Yeah. Um, so they have the 90 days, and that's where the case manager helps them. I'm going to list some of them. Um, helps them get their Social Security card, okay. helps them register their kids in school. Um, they get to all of their first doctor's appointments. They make sure that their English test is taken and that they're going to English class. Um, basic transportation to get places, mm-hmm. learn, teaching them how to do their laundry, to grocery shop, to use the bus. It's everything, again, everything that we've kind of built up and learned throughout our lives, they have to learn it all within 90 days and remember it. Right. <laughs> they have to somehow retain all of that and um, you know know exactly how to get around and everything. And I assume they're learning it in English. Or do they have translators that t- are able to teach it to them? So for our office, we, we have a very international office, so a lot of our, our case managers do speak the language. Oh, great. Um, if, if that's not the case, then we'll... We'll make it as basic as possible, and we'll go with them a few times so yeah. they, they understand, and then, um, or or we will have uh, an interpreter come with us, and and so they can fully understand how how everything works. Great. Yeah. Um, so, do you know a little bit? We would like to know a little bit about the vetting process of like, mm-hmm. um, from when someone I guess applies to be a refugee or to be sorry. Um, when someone applies to be resettled until when they are in either America or whatever country Mm -hmm. and what that process is like and the selection. Because I guess my understanding was that families who come, I guess, anywhere, but probably specifically to America, are kind of hand-selected. Yes. Yep, and that's, I think, another thing that's really important to understand is that this, what I'm going to be talking about, is specific to the United States. Okay. It's not France, it's not Germany, it's not Sweden, it's our own vetting process, okay. which I think is another um, piece of information that sometimes is lost in mm-hmm. translation in the media. Um, we, we have a very specific and very stringent process. 
Um, I'll throw some stats out there. Um, The average application process for a refugee to apply, once they've been selected to apply to come to the United States, it takes roughly two to two and a half years. So it's a very long process, a lot of interviews that go into it. Can I just pause you? Mm -hmm. So just, but before, so let's say someone is in, um, I don't know, Somalia, Mm -hmm. they would go to the UN to apply to be resettled. Is that? Um, Yes. So they would, they most, so people who are in Somalia most likely are in a camp in Kenya. Almost all of the camps are run by UNHCR, so that's the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. They, as far from my research, they run, I'd say, almost all of the refugee camps. Okay. And then they also have NGOs who work with them in the camp. Okay. So if you see other other, uh, organizations working in the camp, it's it's because they're working with, right, exactly, with the UN. So uh, someone, if they... They believe that they are a refugee. They kind of, I don't know how else to describe it. They have to prove that they're a refugee. So they have to go to a camp and make their case. This this is why I'm I'm in fear of my life for, for this reason. Mm-hmm. I actually wrote down the, the definition. Okay, yes. Um, so I'll read that because, again, I think that's really important yeah. for people for people to know. The definition is, is what determines them as a refugee? By the U.N., Right. This so yeah. This is the UNHCR definition of a refugee. Yeah. So a refugee is someone who has been forced to flee his or her country because of persecution, war, or violence. A refugee has a well-founded fear of persecution for reasons of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. Okay. So first, they have to prove <laughs> they that. Prove that. Um, through. Yeah. Um, telling their story and then getting that, you know, fact checked and telling all, all of their bio data. So wow. you know, name, birth date, where they were born, where they lived, who their family members are. Um, and if they're in a city, then usually they go to an embassy to right. to help get that status. So they have to get they're status. Like through hoops. Exactly. To become refugee status. Mm-hmm. And that once they become refugee status. <laughs> Then they can apply to be resettled? Yes. Then they apply to be resettled, and less than 1% of refugees will be resettled. What? So (laughs) it's literally, it's like winning the lottery. Yeah. Yeah. More than that. Yes. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And aren't there, do you know the numbers? I'll look this up, but how many... Because, like, the number of refugees worldwide are in the millions, correct? Yes. I think around... um, I know that there are... Approximately, that number has probably already changed, 65 million internally displaced uh, people, refugees, or asylum seekers. may seekers. have refugee status. So if, you're, if you don't have refugee status, you would be considered asylum seeking? So you would be considered an internally displaced person if you were forced to flee your home for mm-hmm. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, mm-hmm. but you're still inside your home country. Okay. So okay. that's it's a the slight change in definition, but it you haven't it means a lot for for, for yeah. what your options are. So a refugee has to be in a different it's country. Yeah. So people who are from Somalia, most of them most of them flee to Kenya, okay. and then they can um, make an argument oh for gosh. themselves to be a refugee. But they can't if they're in Somalia. 
And so if you're so in technically. Syria, if you're in Syria, then you would feel like Egypt. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. And then you could start this process. Yeah. So Syrian refugees in Jordan or Lebanon, um, they, Lebanon. you know, they, yeah, they're, they're refugees. But people who are still in Syria, if they are within the border, mm-hmm. they're an internally displaced person. So it, it makes a big difference. Um, um, but they're, they're still under that umbrella. Sure. Of, but their know. options are completely different. Exactly. An asylum seeker is someone so someone who might have had a visa to come to the United States, mm. and then they went to you know, an immigration judge and said, I can't go back home. Okay, mm. okay. So that they're, they're seeking asylum in a third-party third. country. Okay. Right. Okay. So it's a, a little bit different. And there and yeah, there are, you know, a ton more vocabulary words sure. with you know, the slight variation in definition, but again yeah, but that's a pretty... makes a big difference for their, a big difference for their options. <laughs> so the so less than one percent of that sixty five million will be resettled, is what you said earlier? Is that did I miss that understand that? It's it's it breaks down a little bit more. It's less than one percent of people who are who are refugees who get that refugee status mm-hmm. less than one percent of them will be will Resettle. end up being resettled resettled anywhere or resettled to the united states um i believe anywhere i'm pretty sure anywhere. yeah i i used to do this spiel all the time last year and then now that i haven't done it in a while i'm like oh <laughs> shoot is it that but it's Good i mean but, yeah, but but it's pretty crazy the number you know but it makes sense that the United States the last year we took um, I think eighty five thousand refugees mm-hmm. and you know and that's just the United States but that that seems like a big number but then you compare it to what is going on in the world and it's a fraction. And it's, of a fraction. Yes, essentially. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> just so. <laughs> yeah. Understanding. Okay. Uh, no. Did you have something? Was. Well, I wanted to know about the, about the bedding. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so a little, if you could explain yes. that. Yes. So, how do you become that yeah. person, I guess? <laughs> so once you fit the definition of a refugee... Um, that you're really... Right, exactly. Right. You somehow prove this. Then, then you wait to be referred to, say, the United States for resettlement. Mm-hmm. And um, that... They kind of they try to gauge of where 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 would you want to be resettled. Oftentimes, it has to do with if they have family members or okay. if there's a big population of a certain of a certain um, people in mm-hmm. that third party country. So, you know, we have a lot of Somali refugees because we have big populations in Minnesota and you know in Maine and other mm-hmm. big cities. And then same thing with Iraqi clients. So we have a lot of Iraqi refugees who are living in Dearborn, Michigan. So with there, there's this attraction. You know, you want to go, or you they say, well, my friend, all my friends yeah. are there, my family's there. You're more than likely, if you do get selected, you will be, you will be placed in that in that third party country. Um, so once you are recommended to go to that particular country then it's kind of like a waiting game for when that application process starts so another crazy data point is that the average stay in a refugee camp is 17 years oh my gosh what yes 
Um, I was expecting something for like four years, like which is still which a is long so time. Yeah. Right. But seventeen years is outrageous. Yeah, and I think again, it's our 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 view, the general, you know, the layman's view of of how long it takes someone to get here, is skewed again because mm-hmm. the whole focus in the media is Syrian refugees, Iraqi refugees, who, of course, what they have gone through and are going through is awful. But we also have clients who are from Bhutan or Somalia who have been in their camps for over 25 years. So, um, okay, pretty crazy. That's so, a, so that's a long time. So they wait. They're very patient. And then the application process starts. So um, it, there are a lot of different players who, who are in the game of, of vetting. And... So a refugee, their, their case, they have to provide as much information about themselves as possible. As possible. So um, it's called biodata, their date of birth, their ethnicity, nationality, where they were born, languages spoken, the proficiency, any family members, like pretty much like list all of your family members. Well, where are they? They died, how they die. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with all of the children on the case. Then they're interviewed by the FBI, excuse me, um, the FBI, they're interviewed by immigration, they're interviewed again by UNHCR, they have medical screenings, um, it's, and so it's a bunch of hoops, more hoops yeah. that they have to go through to prove that they are healthy, they have zero um, you know, ill intentions when they yeah. come to the United States. Tied to right, exactly. They, or... Right, and if and if there's something like they accidentally misspelled the middle name of a child, they have to restart that process. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you can get set back even more. Or if something happens where you miss an appointment, then you have to start. All the way back, beginning. Wow. Is this process analog? Like, you do you write? Do you have to write those forms out, or do they fill in? Or do they not fill in? Do they type it out on a computer? Um, I'm not familiar with that part okay. because that's all done overseas. Yeah. So okay. this is all pre-arrival. Um, yeah. So they. So from what I know, there are there are. Uh, I'm not sure the name of them, but they're kind of like refugee resettlement processing centers. So okay. they go to these buildings for their interviews. So it's people from USCIS, which is the immigration part of the Department of Homeland Security. Okay. They, they do a lot of the interviews. Um, so again, it's, it's asking all of these detailed questions to get an idea of, of what their goals are. Mm-hmm. Um, so once they pass all of these interviews, and again, I don't know each specific sure. one, um, so once they pass all of those, then, and they're all ready to go, they're mm-hmm. medically capable of traveling, then again, it's more waiting because then they have to wait for a placement in a city. Okay. And they have to, um, you know, we have to say, yes, their cousin in Burlington says they would love to help connect them to the community. Um so once we once we say yes, we can take that case, then it's booking the travel. Mm. Um, so it's a very long drawn out process, which I think is important. But a lot of our our clients are new American neighbors. When they come, it's like a, 
yeah. Finally, we're here. Yeah. And then then they have to hit the ground and start running again because, well, you need to get a job and you have to go to English class and your kids have to go to school and, oh, you don't know how to ride the bus? Well, okay, let's go today. Oh, and you need to start making money in 90 days. And right, exactly. Rent is due and, soon yeah. and, yeah, exactly. Wow. So it's it's kind of a whirlwind when yeah. they when they first come. But, um, but all of our clients, they're just so grateful that they – made it through the process yeah. and they're, I mean, like and they're said, here. It's like getting water. Mm-hmm. That's the, the, the odds of getting to right. that, this point. Yeah. Is. And, and refugees are the most vetted immigrants coming through America's doors. Yeah. There's no one who is more you know, stringently analyzed than, than refugees. Yeah. So it's so another cool. important part to, for people to understand is that they go through the ringer to come here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that we uh, we see the media coverage of uh, Syrian refugees or refugees in, uh, from different countries leaving places like Libya, uh, you know, in the boats and mm-hmm. crossing the Mediterranean to go to Italy, and we think, oh, that's that's what they're doing here, which is impossible. But uh, <laughs> but that's kind of what they think is that they're just arriving by the boatload, right? And uh, we don't know who they are. Exactly, yeah, and that's the, it's quite opposite. We know a lot. We know everything about each person coming through, you know, all of their, all of their medical history, their, everything. (laughs) So it's, and it helps us when, when we're doing the resettlement process stateside, it really helps us um, gauge where they can work and what, you know, where, what housing they can afford, that type Mm -hmm. of thing. Um, you mentioned that last year um, America resettled 80,000-ish? Uh, yeah, around 80, 85,000. And then I'm assuming that's been not, that's been cut. Yes, so the President Obama then pushed it to 100,000, and then the goal for the next fiscal year was 110,000. Okay. And then President Trump's executive order slashed that by um, roughly 60% to 50,000. Well, we kind of went over this, the transition period, if there's anything you want to add about when you get here. Um, yeah, so I think it's important for people to understand that the transition period is difficult in a way. Everyone yeah. wants, they want this change, but it's, again, it's so much being thrown at them at once, mm-hmm. and they left everything that was familiar with them. Any Any type of normal has now gone Mm. so um, you know they have to make new friends they have a new neighborhood and um, for some of our clients it takes it's a quick transition and others it takes a little bit uh, more guidance for them to get to that point I'm sure it would be very frustrating starting over and not understanding yes the language exactly I would be very frustrated so then what are ways that we can help um, refugees transition? So I think it's important for people to understand that they can volunteer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they can connect with a family and, and kind of be like their mentor. I think it's important for people to understand that donating to an agency like like mine or like the one in Manchester, I think that, you know, understanding that that does go a long way to help support 
to you know, continue to support services that we provide and, and things that we can provide for our clients. Um, and then I guess in general for refugees, it's important to con- continue to talk to your representatives and, mm. and express how much gratitude you have that refugees are here and tell good stories of interactions you've had with refugees yeah. to, to continue that positive momentum mm-hmm. instead, of, um, instead of perpetuating any negative yeah. clouds that are following that that topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you mentioned donating to um, to your your local refugee agency. Um, mm-hmm. I think we've we've met people uh, we've uh, we met people who are skeptical of refugee aid or uh, organizations like that mm-hmm. because they think that the bulk of their donation goes to. Overhead. Uh, overhead, yeah. Right. Management costs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, the people that are that have complained about are talking about people who are are talking about organizations that are overseas, um, working with uh, immigrants in like Greece and things like that. But right. but what about here? What, do you have any comments on that? So that from thing? from from what I know about my organization is that I think it's ninety eight percent of any financial donation goes directly to um, providing services. So it does go back to the client. I think a really good alternative if people don't feel comfortable donating money, because I, I understand that, um, I think it's also important to, for people to know that they can donate goods. They can donate an umbrella. They can, do- they can donate um, a watch for our clients to be able to Tell the time so they can get to the bus. Um, they can donate an English translation dictionary so mm-hmm. our clients can study English words in their own language and you know help propel themselves forward even more. So for people who are skeptical and who just cannot be convinced to donate money, I think reaching out to the agency and asking, well, what do you need? What do the clients right, need? Yeah. How else could I help without donating money? And that's part of what, what my agency does is that we, we furnish apartments for clients, every, every agency does, and we rely on donations. So we rely on people to donate furniture mm-hmm. and kitchen items and dish soap and deodorant and for us to put in, in each apartment. So I think that's another way that people can reach out. I know every agency is different in how they run that type of um, that that part of their of their agency, but I think that's a, a good alternative. Um, this is a side note, just kind of for our listeners. I have heard, um, and this was from an NPO working in Greece, mm-hmm. um, and their advice actually was not to donate items mm-hmm. because a lot of them get stuck at import um, because of import taxes. So I guess if you were wanting to donate items to donate them to resettlement agencies in the United States. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. That That's yeah. what I meant. Not overseas. No, yeah, yeah. To just, the... Oh, okay. I see for, what you're saying. Just for listeners, just so mm-hmm. if you do want to donate items, make sure that it's somewhere going in the United States, local. Right. Sending um, things overseas, sending them something is, overseas gets a lot more complicated. Probably will never get to them. <laughs> right. Um, cool. It's, yeah. That, sorry. I, that's a, and that's a good point because I think that when we donate... Uh, when we when we donate food or, or canned food or clothing, we're like we're gonna go help. Like we're gonna help some kid in Africa have a shirt. 
Mm -hmm. uh, but really, where that's going to do the most good is right here when people come in with nothing because they've left everything. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that definitely helps more. Um, you mentioned a few things that you wanted the average like population to know. Mm -hmm. um, but if if let's say everyone in America was listening to this podcast, what would you want them to know about your work? I think it's important for people to understand that refugees are just like us in that they want what's best for their family. They want their children to get an education. Um, and they don't have a home to go back to, and that's why they're here trying to start a new life. They all want a job. They all want to contribute to society. They all they do pay taxes. Mm -hmm. They they want to live a normal life, and I think that's the I think that's the most important point for people to step back and think about is that they they want for the same things. Mm -hmm. I have I have one more question, um, and feel free to escape or not on this one. But in listening to a lot of the policies and procedures that you've talked about, that the hoops that refugees have to jump through mm -hmm. to get here, um, a lot of a lot of me says like that's just not right, or like I can't believe we do it like this. It's kind of angry, and I want to protest it. Is that the right answer, or should I, spend should I, or, or the average person. American, spend my time in a better way, <laughs> my thoughts better? I think that. A little difficult to answer this question. I think that it's important that anyone coming to the United States is as safe as possible and is coming here for the right reasons. And I think that's partly why these policies are in place. It's not to make anyone's life more difficult. Yeah. It's to, to make sure that we're not accepting just anyone because that could you know, you never know where that could lead. I think it is important for people to be supporting their local agency and getting involved and spreading positive stories about with, you know, for people they've interacted with, good interactions like your interviews earlier with the refugee families. Um, I think that's more important to vocalize than the, the vetting process. It's, it's been developed over the past, you know, what, three decades now. Um, and again, you know, from, from my point of view as a 24-year-old <laughs> recent graduate who is working with refugees, I think that our clients don't care what they have to do as long as the, the end point is being in a safe place with their family. Mm -hmm. So I think if you want to be vocal about something, I think it's dispelling rumors about refugees and befriend, you know, befriend them and um, you know, show other people who might be skeptical about their neighbor that no, they're normal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can I do one one last question I just thought of. <laughs> We've asked refugees this as mm -hmm. well, or your clients this, I guess you could say. Um, but we, we've asked them if they could speak to all America. What would you say 
We've also asked if you could speak to all refugees, if you could say something to them, mm-hmm. what, what would you say? Do you have any advice? Do you have any, anything that you, that you maybe tell each of your clients? Um, what I tell every client who comes through when we do our initial interview is that we are so happy you are here. Um, we waited a long time for you to come and that it will get better. Any hardship that you're facing right now, you will push through it and you'll make it work. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> of Thank course. You. <laughs> Thank you yeah. so much. That's the end of our interview. You may remember that Anna was uncertain if some of the numbers that she gave us were correct. We double-checked her numbers before publishing this podcast, and she was correct. There are currently 65.3 million refugees, and less than 1% are resettled into another country. We had a couple of takeaways from our chat with Anna, one being that it is extremely difficult to be resettled in the United States of America, and with good reason, too. Countries have an obligation to keep their own citizens safe, so a stringent process to vet potential new citizens is necessary and is currently a reality. But what happens after those refugees make it to our country is equally important, and perhaps lacking in the United States. New refugees have only three months to master a new culture, a new language, a new job, and a new set of societal norms. This is where caring citizens of the United States come into play. We can provide goods and services for refugees who have just entered this country. We can help them ease and assimilate into American culture and language simply by reaching out. Anna said that this is one of the most important things that we can do for new refugees. Befriend them and help them in their new life here. We encourage our listeners to reach out to their local refugee services to see what they can do to help, no matter where they live. It could be New York, New Jersey, New Hampshire, Ohio, Texas, or Utah. Wherever you live, there's always something you can do. Sometimes it's as little as driving a new family home from the airport. Sometimes it's as simple as getting to know your friendly neighborhood refugee. You can make a huge difference in their lives without sending money to a large bureaucratic organization where you don't know if the money is benefiting somebody. All we want is for you to go out and make a difference. Be sure to tune in next week when we interview a family from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. They've got nine kids and they're so talented and their story is really amazing. Thanks so much for listening. This is Friendly Neighborhood Refugee.